First to jump for holes and tunnels and to keep our skivvies clean, we are proud to claim the title of the Corregidor Marines. Our drawers unfurled to every breeze from dawn to setting sun. We have jumped into every hole and ditch and for us the fighting was fun. We have plenty of guns and ammunition, but not cigars and cigarettes. At last, we may be smoking leaves wrapped in Nipponese propaganda leaflets. When the army and the navy looked out Corregidor's tunnel queen, they saw the beaches guarded by more than one marine. Hello, Anastasia Harmon here. Thanks for joining me for Left Behind the Scenes. These are mini-episodes that I'll publish occasionally, and they allow me to chat with you in an informal, close-to-one-on-one format. In these episodes, I'll offer you answers to frequently asked questions about the Left Behind podcast, descriptions about how I research the people I highlight, and details on topics that tie into Left Behind episodes. So, let's get started! Last week's episode was all about the 4th Marines defending Corregidor Island when Japanese troops landed on it the night of May 5th to 6th, 1942. That episode, number 44, was about the 4th Marines in general, with brief highlights on a few Marines. So today, as a follow-up to the last episode, I want to introduce, or perhaps reintroduce, you to several more Marines who I focused on in previous episodes and whose stories are worth sharing again. The very first episode of Left Behind told the story of Marine Major Frank Pizek. When the 4th Marine Regiment arrived in the Philippines from Shanghai, China, they were stationed at Alangapo Navy Yard, which is on the extreme northwestern part of Bataan Peninsula. Pearl Harbor was attacked a week later. Now, I chose to start the podcast with Pizek's story because he literally announced the war. Here's a clip from that episode. It was 3.50 a.m. on Monday, December 8, 1941, at Alangapo Naval Yard on Luzon Island in the Philippines. A motorcycle broke the morning silence as it raced through Alangapo's marine barracks. A U.S. Marine's angry voice yelled out well before dawn, Why don't you get the hell out of here and let us sleep? But the rumbling engine isn't what woke the sleeping servicemen. No, it was Major Frank Pizek shouting, like a 20th century Paul Revere from the motorcycle's sidecar, War is declared! War is declared! Perhaps part of the novelty that early morning was hearing Major Pizek speaking at all. A shorter man with a quick walking pace, Pizek was a 39-year-old career Marine with prominent ears and a penetrating, thoughtful gaze and known for his quiet, retiring disposition. A gong sounded at Alangapo, waking those who hadn't heard Major Pizek's voice ringing out through the night and causing one Marine of 1st Battalion to complain, What kind of newfangled revelry is this? He and his companions tumbled from their bunks, still half asleep. The pajama-clad Marine stood in formation. Their executive officer, also in his nightclothes, explained the early morning roll call. Japanese planes have just attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. The United States is at war with Japan. They got us up for that? A Marine complained, unsurprised that war had started. After all, the 4th Marine Regiment had arrived in the Philippines from Shanghai, China, just a week before, in anticipation of hostilities with Japan. Still, Despite the early hour, the 4th Marines, 1st Battalion immediately prepared to leave Alangapo for the Bataan Peninsula, except for the Heavy Weapons Company and certain members, such as Major Pizek, of the Headquarters Company. 
No, the United States needed those Marines at Alangapo for the time being. Wow, listening to that first episode is kind of surreal. For some reason, my voice is so low, almost like I'm whispering. And did you notice how fast I was talking? Like, barely taking breaths in between. Well, I was very nervous. Also, today my voice sounds weird. I must be losing it or something. I didn't even notice till I started recording. Anyway, a few weeks after this announcement, Pysik had an unusual Christmas. It was dark by 7 p.m. on December 26, 1941, the day after Christmas. The temperature at Olongapo probably dropped into the low 80s, so it would have been warm enough without the raging fire. That fire would have illuminated the retreating form of Major Pysik as he left the Navy Yard that he had just destroyed. Pysik and a detachment of Marines had remained behind at Olongapo, detonating explosives all over the yard, sinking a U.S. ship, and destroying as many submarine parts as could be found. They then doused everything that hadn't been blown up with fuel and set it all on fire, an effort to keep weapons, supplies, and more from falling into enemy hands. And then Pysik and the detachment, the Navy Yard burning behind them, headed into the Bataan jungle. The Allied forces on Luzon, that's the Philippines' largest island, were withdrawing to Bataan Peninsula and wanted anything that might fall into enemy hands destroyed. That included navy yards and much, much more, which is why Frank Pysik destroyed a navy yard. Another reason I wanted to start with Pysik's story is that he saved my great-grandfather's life. It was the afternoon of the Corregidor surrender. Pysik and my great-grandfather had just become POWs. The American men had been told to put all their weapons in a large pile, but turns out they weren't thorough enough. After the firing ceased and American forces had completely surrendered, a Japanese sentry suddenly became vocal with obvious displeasure. He had found a pistol hidden in a tunnel crevice. It was an oversight by the American searchers, but the Japanese sentry was suspicious and angry, and suspicious angry guards can mean punishment or death for the prisoners. Luckily for the POWs, Major Pysik knew Japanese. He kept calm and in his quiet voice explained the situation. It was a mistake, an oversight. We did not hide the gun intentionally. It is not meant for Japanese soldiers. Major Pysik's words pacified the suspicious guard. But the anxious POWs then spent the entire night researching the tunnels to make sure there were no hidden weapons. By early the next morning, they had found pistols, a couple of rifles, ammunition, some machetes and bayonets, and a couple of hand grenades. But now they had a dilemma, as my great-grandfather explained in his memoir, read here by his great-grandson. How were we to get this contraband out of the tunnel and past the guard at the entrance without this coming to his attention? And if it did, God only knows what possible repercussions would happen. It was a real concern because Japanese personnel had already beaten or killed American and Filipino POWs for having Japanese money on their person. The presence of Japanese money meaning that that individual had killed a Japanese soldier then took the money off the body. Weapons in the hands of prisoners, obviously, was not something the Japanese would look favorably upon. So the POWs boxed up the items, carefully handling the grenades separately. Then a small group of POWs distracted the guard by showing him something interesting and talking to him as best they could. Meanwhile, other POWs carried out small boxes of weapons, mingling in with the continual flow of pedestrian traffic in and out of the tunnel. They dumped the boxes in a pile of weapons and debris outside the tunnel entrance. It was still early and dark, so there were no other Japanese sentries around. Among Pysik's Marine brothers was a handsome young Marine lieutenant named Alan Manning. He brought something 
special to the Philippines when he sailed there from China. And that special something was his beautiful fiance, Francis Long. Now, Francis couldn't stay with the Marines at Alangapo Navy Yard, so Alan Manning bid her farewell, and she found a hotel room in Manila. On Sunday, December 7th, Alan visited Francis. They spent the day together, then said their goodbyes, and then, well, a pesky war intervened. Frances Long slept in on Monday, December 8th, awakening in her hotel room to a bright, sunny morning. She decided that today it was time to explore Manila. Emerging from her room, she went down to breakfast, but found the hotel oddly empty, except for a few Filipino workers rushing around and not paying attention to her. Undaunted, she stepped outside the hotel and took a walk along Manila's famed waterfront, which was lined with green lawns. Small groups of American soldiers surrounded anti-aircraft guns on those manicured lawns as Frances strolled down Dewey Boulevard, Manila Bay on one side of her and fine homes on the other. But the soldiers and guns were a normal sight in Manila, so she didn't pay much attention. Then, from overhead, she heard the drone of airplanes. Looking skyward, she shielded her eyes and saw nine planes in perfect formation, and then a loud bang. Frances whipped around and saw smoke from an anti-aircraft gun, Then she was grabbed by the arm and thrown into a ditch. Stupid silly girl, yelled an American soldier who now sat on her stomach, preventing her from rising. Just like a woman to walk vaguely along the road while war's going on. What? What war? Francis cried in response, completely confused. Well, what do you think? War's been declared on Japan, been all over the papers, damn women and their plagued empty heads. The planes disappeared and the anti-aircraft gun ceased. The soldier removed himself from Francis and she got on her feet. He thrust a piece of shrapnel in her face. Here, put this in front of your mirror to remind yourself there's a war going on. With the start of the war, Francis was stranded in Manila. She had no money and no way to leave. So she found a job and then ran into an old school friend and they began to share a hotel room together. And then news came that the U.S. military was abandoning Manila, with most military personnel withdrawing to the Bataan Peninsula and some going to Corregidor Island in Manila Bay. Francis and the other clerical workers at Naval Intelligence were given their last paychecks and dismissed. I was stunned. It never occurred to me that the Japs would get as far as Manila. The evacuating servicemen gave Francis, Jesse, and other civilians their excess food, cases of coke and liquor, cigarettes, radios, movie cameras, and more. Francis and Jesse stacked all of their newfound loot in their hotel room. On December 30th and 31st, Francis and Jesse watched the last of the U.S. military leave Manila, the midnight sky bright red from explosions and fires of gas reserves, equipment, military bases, and other important targets the U.S. didn't want falling into Japanese hands. And then, Francis was alone. Sure, Jessie and a few other friends were with her, but she was stranded, with no permanent residence and no income, in a foreign city about to be occupied by enemy forces. Well, Francis and Jessie remained at their hotel, staying indoors as much as possible. They watched the Japanese army move into Manila on January 1st, and then encountered their first Japanese military figure a couple days later when he inspected their hotel rooms. Yankee girls, he had chuckled on his way out. Yankee girls indeed. 
but what would become of them in an enemy-occupied, war-torn foreign city? Within days, Francis and Jesse were sent to a civilian internment camp in Manila. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Alan Manning was captured on Corregidor Island and then sent to the Cabanatuan POW camps with the rest of the 4th Marines. While in the camp, Lieutenant Manning found a unique way to keep himself occupied. Lieutenant Manning was on Corregidor when the island fortress fell to Japanese forces in early May 1942. He was sent to Cabanatuan POW camp, where he became somewhat of a star, as my great-grandfather Almasam recorded in his memoir. Over the months, we gradually found talent, and occasionally on Saturday, we held an open-air variety show, weather permitting. The stage was constructed from a few rough planks. Due to an exceptional concession on the part of the Japanese camp authorities, the luxury of a couple of electric lights for our show was authorized for a time. Lieutenant Manning, U.S. Marine Corps, was among the leading and versatile actors. You should have seen our American ingenuity at its peak when employed in rounding up and fashioning costumes. In portraying a woman, corn tassels made an excellent substitute for imitation hair. Coconut shells were also useful for portraying women, or so Alma explained. A couple days after Pisic had announced that war had begun, two young marine privates, Brooks Miller and Louis Sontag, were stationed at Cavite Navy Yard, just south of Manila, and were among the first of the 4th Marine Regiment to be attacked by Japanese forces. It was two full days since the Japanese first attacked the Philippines. Two full days since Cavite's commander looked to the morning skies and announced, the Japs ought to be here any minute. But Japanese aircraft had never arrived, at Cavite at least. Airfields all over Luzon, the Philippines' largest island, had been bombed to oblivion, but the Cavite Navy Yard remained untouched. Ships, apparently, were not Japan's primary target. So Privates Miller and Sontag, and the 700 other U.S. Marines, as well as thousands of Navy personnel and civilians working in and stationed at the yard, had become somewhat complacent. The Marines' main job was to man the yard's artillery batteries. Just before noon, the Marines of Battery F, including Miller and Sontag, heard aircraft engines and looked skyward to see more than 50 aircraft in three V formations approaching. Their first response was relief. But something was wrong. The Marines noticed a dogfight under the formation. Then the yard's air raid sounded. The first bombs hit the water of Manila Bay, but were soon followed by more accurate bombs that hit the ground, rocking the naval base. Planes crisscrossed the yard, raining down bombs that exploded buildings and started fires. Unfortunately, Battery F's machine guns had little effect on the enemy planes. The battery's frustrated rangefinder called out, They're above the range of our guns, Lieutenant. Check again, Private. Same, sir. They're flying above 21,000 feet. Our guns only reach 15,000. Damn. Damn it, fire anyway. So Sontag Miller and their fellow Marines fired their 50 caliber machine guns at the Japanese bombers, while Miller murmured that a toy pistol would damage those planes as much as we are. The company's captain soon ordered them to cease fire since the bullets did nothing against the planes. Across the naval yard, off-duty Marines lined up to get ammunition so they could fire on any Japanese Zeros strafing the yard. The lined-up Marines dove for cover when bombs dropped, then got back in line until another bomb sent them scrambling. Bombs dropped for two hours. Out-of-control fires raged, destroying everything in their paths. The power plant, repair ships, dispensary, barracks, ammunition, and more. 
Civilians and sailors ran to Guadalupe Pier, trying to escape the bombs. When the last Japanese planes left, some 1,500 servicemen and civilians were dead or wounded. But near Guadalupe Pier, explosions continued to rock the ground. The battery's lieutenant and captain surveyed the situation. It's the torpedo warehouse, sir. The fires are exploding the warheads. And the fires have now trapped us all on this damn pier. Surrounded by water on three sides and blocked by fire and exploding torpedoes on the fourth, the Marines, civilians, and sailors on Guadalupe Pier were in dire straits. Thinking quickly, the captain shouted orders. All right, you there, Miller. Grab that hammer. Sontag, start gathering wood. Rip up the dock if you have to. We're making rafts to get these people off this pier. Shortly after this attack, Private Sontag and Miller were sent to Southern Bataan, and then they were quickly transferred to Corregidor Island. You see, while most Allied forces were withdrawing to Bataan in late December 1941 and early January 1942, most of the 4th Marine Regiment went to Corregidor Island. Once on the island, Marine Lieutenant Colonel Curtis Beecher was ordered to oversee his unit, that was 1st Battalion, and their construction of beach defenses on the island's northeastern side. Beecher later recalled, The task confronting us was appalling. With 350 men, there were 3,500 to 4,000 yards of possible landing beach to defend. But the daunting task didn't stop Beecher. He got his men right to work. Historian Miller related, Work began rapidly on construction of beach defenses. The Marines began to build barbed wire barriers, tank traps, bunkers, and trench systems. Working parties began at first light in the morning and halted only at noon for a rest period in place of lunch. The work progressed well, slowed only by Japanese shelling, bombing, and darkness. In the very beginning of January 1942, the Japanese bombed Corregidor for at least two hours per day for five days straight. Thereafter, through about the end of March, they bombed the island only sporadically, which allowed 1st Battalion to continue their beach defense preparation more easily. Let's go back to Miller again. Tools were carefully guarded. As one lieutenant remembered, We took care of our tools like gems. The Marines ran short of sandbags, so discarded powder cans from the coastal artillery guns were filled with dirt and used in their place. Bottles were filled with gasoline to make Molotov cocktails to be dropped over cliffs on the Japanese. Empty gasoline drums were filled with dirt and rock and set up as tank traps on trails leading from the beach. Each position was carefully camouflaged for protection, and dummy positions were also constructed to attract enemy fire. Marines of Company B located Army aircraft bombs, and wooden chutes were constructed to drop the bombs on landing areas. A second line of defense and reserve positions were also built behind the front-line beach defenses, with the hope of eventual reinforcement. Beecher indeed had plenty to be proud of with his Marine Battalion's work ethic, but there were some inhabitants of the island fortress who were not so inclined. Not all men were brave, and each garrison had a share of tunnel rats, the taunt reserved for those who never left the safety of Malinta Tunnel. Such men were said to have tunnelitis, a disease characterized by a furtive manner and the sallow complexion associated with those who live underground. For these men, those outside the tunnel had only contempt, tinged perhaps with envy. One serviceman who obviously wasn't a tunnel rat wrote of his feelings toward the men suffering from tunnelitis. We say that they'll lose tunnel credit if they're seen outside the tunnel. 
and we joshed him about the DTS medal, Distinguished Tunnel Service. If they gather plenty of tunnel credits, as opposed to shell-shocked, we say of confirmed tunneliers that they are shelter-shocked. An anonymous Corregidor Marine even referenced the subterranean life in alternate lyrics he composed for the Marine's hymn. First to jump for holes and tunnels and to keep our skivvies clean, we are proud to claim the title of the Corregidor Marines. Our drawers unfurled to every breeze from dawn to setting sun. We have jumped into every hole and ditch and for us the fighting was fun. We have plenty of guns and ammunition, but not cigars and cigarettes. At last, we may be smoking leaves wrapped in Nipponese propaganda leaflets. When the army and the navy looked out Corregidor's tunnel queen, they saw the beaches guarded by more than one marine. And that brings us to last week's episode, when the Japanese forces invaded Corregidor Island and met Beecher's 1st Battalion Marines, face to face. But since you probably just listened to it last week, I'm not going to add in a clip here. If you haven't had the chance to listen to it, it's the episode just before this on your podcast feed. I'll also include that episode link in the show notes, and I'll include links to the rest of the episodes I've mentioned here. Well, that's Left Behind the Scenes for today. Be sure to like and subscribe to Left Behind so that you're the first to know when I drop next week's episode about the very last message sent from Corregidor during that last battle and right before the Americans hoisted a white flag of surrender. Have a fantastic week.